the Attractions Group Podcast. This is episode 77. I'm Ryan Sir, along with Don Helbig. Don, how are you doing today? Doing great. Uh, getting ready to head out west to Texas for the American Coaster Enthusiast Winterfest event. Uh, a lot of familiar names on the list of presenters, and uh, so really looking forward to that. Cool. So, uh, you know, before we dive into our special guest today, uh, you can find us on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple, Google, Spotify. Uh, make sure that you hit that like and subscribe button on YouTube, but we do have a video version of the podcast there. Don, what do we have going on today? Well, our special guest, uh, he's synonymous with the industry, you know, really need to know introduction. He's an IAPA Hall of Famer. And of course, we're talking about Dennis Spiegel. Dennis, how you doing? I'm good, Don. How are you? How are you, Ryan? Great. Little wet here, a little cold in Cincinnati, but other than that, doing fine. Yeah, we feel yeah. All right, uh, so let's dive right into it. So I, most people who listen to this podcast would probably know who you are, uh, and that you're tied in with Kings Island, Kings Dominion, Coney Island, so on. Um, why don't you talk about where you got started? Uh, like, w- where did Dennis Spiegel start in the industry, and and what propelled you upward? Well, I started at Coney Island here in Cincinnati in 1959. I was in junior high school, and um, Coney Island, like a lot of amusement parks, there weren't any theme parks at that time, really, except Disney. <clears throat> they employed uh, educators, teachers, superintendents, principals. They all worked at amusement parks around the country, and I, w- my family was a very good friend with the superintendent of my of my high school, and he was the head of the admissions program at Coney Island at the auto gate. And he needed some help uh, during the summer to facilitate and expedite and get people in. So he hired me to help hand out tickets on Procter & Gamble Day and Kroger Day and Dayton Day and all of these days that went on. And uh, I worked there with him from uh, 1959 through junior high, high school and through college to 1969 when I was uh, hired full-time by the Coney Island staff. They saw me every day when they came in, uh, stood there in a shirt and tie and wingtip shoes and, uh, and kind of made a first impression. That's the way we dressed at the, at the front gate, the auto gate at Coney Island and uh, happened to be at the right place at the right time. Yeah, Dennis, uh, I have fond memories of, of Coney Island, you know, from my childhood. It's, it, you know, my childhood memories, you know, there's not many of them that don't have Coney Island in it. But that park had an acknowledged reputation as one of the finest amusement parks in the country. Talk a little bit about what the park had to offer. What was so special about it? Well, it was America's finest amusement park <clears throat> and judged as such by the industry. And, of course, uh, the great story that I like to tell is that uh, it was one of the handful of parks that Walt Disney uh, befriended, came to, to get ideas for Disneyland when he was planning it. So he became great friends with the uh, uh, Schott and Walks family, Ed Schott, Ralph Walks, Gary Walks, Jimmy Walks, all of them. And uh, <clears throat> it was, uh, he came here many times uh, to see the park and would sit literally in the park on the bench and study people, rides, attractions, and got a lot of ideas from it. In fact, uh, you probably saw Don at one point in time. We used to have a check hanging in the 
Caprice, the suite at Kings Island from Walt Disney that shot for $1 for his services and advice on Disney. Oh, yeah. Never, never, never cashed. So, and, and the great thing about that check, it was check number one. Check number one. That's, so, yeah. so that, that was certainly part of it. But <clears throat> we, were, we were a beautiful park. We were, we were lucky. We had a wonderful um, piece of dirt. We were on the river. We had the, the river boats that came up and down, delivered people through the years, going way back to the early Island Queen and then to the Delta Queens. Uh, and uh, so it, it just was a great park. and People loved it. And we're seeing that today as the park has been announced, it's going to close and people are out front picketing. <laughs> Probably today, they were this weekend when I drove by, uh, trying to still keep it open. So it, it, it was a great park. Yeah, again, like I said, lots of memories there. One of my memories is a regret, the shooting star. The last day Coney Island was open in 1971, uh, September 6th. I go through the line, give my little tickets. You know, you had to dump those in and stuff to write. Sit down in the, in the car with my sister. The train behind it, it made it like that loud noise going through the helix before it came back into the station. That freaked me out. You know, so I got out of the train, never rode. It would have been my first roller coaster ride. Uh, um, so that so that that's my biggest regret ever is that I never rode that. So Dennis, tell me what I missed. Well, Shooting Star was a great coaster. It was a dog leg left, uh, ninety six feet high. Went out, dropped down about. I think the dip on that one was about uh, fifty three or so degrees. And uh, went out, made the made the turn, came back in, and on its way in after it hit the whoop de doos. It would come into the, before going to the station, it would go through a tunnel. And um, you were screaming on the way out, you were screaming on the way back. And when you hit that tunnel, it was well placed because you hit the tunnel and then you came in, made your turn back into the back break at the station. So everybody was screaming and hollering uh, when they came in on the train. And of course, if you were standing in the queue line, you're going, oh my God, I can't wait. I'm going to do the same thing. What I used to do, the last two years of the park, I was really fortunate. I was assistant manager of the park and uh, find all kinds of different things to do and have fun in the park. And one of the things I do is walk up to the top of the shooting star. I'd stand at that turn. And when people would come up the, on the train, they would come up and as they made the dog leg left, you kind of came up and went down like this a little bit. I'd be standing there. I'd say, have a great ride. <laughs> scare the hell out of them. <laughs> and they were gone. They didn't know, they didn't know what they had just run into. So, but it was a great coaster and uh, really had it not been for the shooting star, uh, there wouldn't be a racer or a beast and, or a great American scream machine or, uh, and I can go on and name about four or 500 coasters but the shooting star was was the primer for all those coasters that came after, uh, starting with the racer. All right, like I said, I was mesmerized by it, but just you know couldn't bring myself to do it at that age. Missed a great ride. It, it was fun. You you kind of went down the first dip, and you couldn't see the track there when you went down. Yeah. So Dennis, um, you know, most people listening to this podcast know the story of how uh, Kings Island's inception was a result of Coney Island. Uh, due to space constraints and flooding and a myriad of other reasons, moved up 71 to the small town of Kings Mills, Ohio. Um, but very few people actually were there as part of the process. 
Can you tell me from your perspective, the story of when they made the decision to move and what like the logistics were of moving after the 1971 season? Yeah, well, um, let me start a few years before that, Ryan. Um, we were landlocked on Coney Island. We had uh, River Downs race course to the east of us. We had the community of California, Ohio, to the west of us. We had the river on the south and 52, Route 52 on the, on the north. So we had 155 acres, which incidentally is what Walt Disney started out with in Disneyland in California. Everybody thinks that was a thousand acres and everything. It was 155 acres. And we were <clears throat> we were having floods almost every year back then. It was different different weather patterns and times. And it was very costly. And uh, young man Gary Walks, who you should have on your podcast at some times, <clears throat> uh, he was son of Ralph Walks, nephew of uh, Ed Schott. Uh, he, he saw, he was in the business, he wanted to stay in the business, and he saw the industry developing. So he started planning and planting the seeds, if you will, for a, a new park to move somewhere, find a place to go. Uh, it was early in the industry. There, there, were, there were only, at that point in time, uh, when we were moving and getting late in the 60s, there were only two Six Flags parks excuse me, there was Texas opened in 61 and Georgia in 67. And um, the board of directors just didn't move on that, that issue until Fess Parker, who we know as Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone, and he had worked with, <laughs> with Walt Disney, he saw the, the opportunity to come across the river, directly across the river over to Boone County and build a park. So Gary Walks had been preaching and selling and knocking on the doors of the board members with no, no uh, response at this point. And when Fess Parker came in <clears throat> and he announced what he was going to do, Gary went to uh, Charles Sawyer, who was one of the larger stockholders in the, in the deal and had never really moved positively on this and said, hey, look, if we don't do something here, he's coming in across the river. We've seen what he can do, and he worked with Disney. We're going to be out of business. And boy, I'll tell you, things started flying and moving. It was crazy. And uh, and that's how uh, Kings Island really got its momentum and started the planning. I mean, we, uh, we didn't even uh, have a name for the park. In fact, if you can see over my shoulder here, that's one of the three original groundbreaking shovels of Kings Island. And it says on it, new park ground oak breaking in 1970. We didn't wow. even have a name at the time. So, so we, the first started flying and we moved very quickly. Well, Dennis, how hard was that though? I mean, as, you know, everybody absolutely loved Coney Island. So how hard was that for the people working there to take what was, you know, just so much a part of people's lives and uprooting it and moving it north to Mason? Well, if we probably knew now what we knew then or, or knew then what we know now, we probably would have thrown our hands up and not, not have done it because everything was empirical. We went from 155 acres to over 1,500 acres. We went from uh, 
about five, 700 employees to almost 5,000 employees. We went from a small parking lot to 110 acres of parking lot. We went from uh, $5 million, $6 million of annual revenue to $35 million. Every, so everything, there wasn't even a graph, it just, everything went straight up from an operating standpoint. When we made that, when we made that uh, decision to go, when Gary walks and the board and you know, I was just a kid. I was only 23 uh, when that was when that was planned. We were just working our butts off, making it happen, doing the planning, fighting for the racing coaster. At that point in time, I wanted to tell you that when we were talking about coasters, guys, um, coasters were considered uh, passe and and uh, low class. Six Flags didn't have any. Disney didn't have any. But we knew here in Cincinnati the legacy of the star. And I mean, we literally fought tooth and nail to get the racer coaster in the park, which is another great story. But I won't go into that, all of that right now. But uh, that created the resurgence, as I said earlier, of the roller coaster. So we were, we were working internally. We weren't getting a lot of pushback, Don, Ryan, from the marketplace at that point in time. I don't think people really knew or understood because there wasn't a theme park like there is now within ever uh, you know 250 or two hours of every major SMSA. So um, the, the interesting thing is Ed McHale, who was the park manager and I was his assistant, we were responsible for moving Coney Island to Kings Island. What we did was uh, Gary Walks took the baby. There were 16 of us full time and he split the baby in half, took half the team up to Mason and kept half down at Coney. We had the operating and the construction team and we had to do that because we had to keep generating money and we had to get the park under underway. So we we literally Ed and I uh, put together a plan and we moved the entire park of what we wanted to move from the sky ride to the knives and forks and spoons and spider and cuddle up and everything. 30 days, we had all that up at King's Island. So it was a big undertaking and, uh, uh, but it all went well. It was very smooth and, uh, and we opened on time. Now, Dennis, after a few years at King's Island, after it opened, you move on to start King's Dominion. So what did you take from the construction of King's Island and maybe thinking if we had to do it again, we would have done this. How did you take those learnings and incorporate it at King's Dominion? Well, from, from my personal <clears throat> and professional standpoint, I was at King's Island and assistant park manager then, or general manager, can't remember my title, from uh, for 72 and 73, okay? And I was still operating. At the latter part of 73, uh, Gary Walks said, I want you to come down. Gary had moved and taken the team again, part of the team, Jim Figley, Roy Rector, the, the guys, Charlie Flat, the guys who had uh, developed the park, uh, Kings Island, took them down to Virginia. <clears throat> and he said, I want you to start coming down and get ready because you're going to be the general manager of this park. So I was three days at Kings Island one day on an airplane and three days at King's Dominion that whole year. 
Uh, I didn't get a day off in 1973, uh, but that was okay. I could I could do that back then. And um, we were we were drawing on all the knowledge we had learned at Kings Island. But quite frankly, when we got to Kings Dominion, part of that team, and when the design had started, it, it, and it was too late when I got there to change it, but we made some errors. That park, Kings Dominion, should have been shifted on its axis, its front gate, and it should have gone more to the southeast than it did. And <clears throat> on International Street, Kings Island, we built the same buildings, had the same esplanade and the Eiffel Tower, but we didn't have the cut-throughs to Hanna-Barbera land, and we didn't have the cut-throughs over to uh, the north side of the park at Kings Island, which was the German Fest and Lion Country Safari. So we didn't have that circulation this way through the park that we, at Kings Dominion, that we had at Kings Island. And when I opened the park, I realized that uh, all we had was a pipe stem and people would come in and they'd go into the park and they wouldn't come back up to the International Street till about four o'clock. So we had a huge wasting asset there, which later I was able to get the board of directors to give me some money to do rides and push out the sides of those uh, streets a little bit as far as we could. We didn't have much room, really because of the way the parks are designed. But uh, so we we had a lot of good things we learned, the coasters and the development and the technology, but we missed a, a few things on the design. So that's the way it is. Yeah. yeah, that's true. So Dennis, a part of King's Dominion's storied history involves a filming of a movie called Roller Coaster. I've, I've heard <laughs> I know somebody that I'm on Skype, Skype with right now that made a cameo in it. Tell us about that. Hey, cameo! I had a starring role. What are you talking about? Uh, I want to. I want to redact my statement. You were a star. <laughs> so, <clears throat> how that came about? Uh, Universal Studios called me, and um, they said, "Look, we're going to be making a movie about amusement parks, and we'd like to utilize King's Dominion. We're going to utilize." Uh, the park down in Norfolk that was being torn down, and we're going to be using uh, Magic Mountain in California. And I said, well, tell me about the, tell me, and we'd like KD. And I said, well, tell me about the script and everything. So uh, they said, well, we, we, we have a, there's a person who extorts money from the parks by going through them and if they don't give them the money, this is the cliff note, we blow up your roller coaster and uh, hurt people. And I said, no, nah, that's not a very good story. We we don't like that story too much. This is, this is not going to be well received. And they said, essentially, after one, I'm working with uh, Sid Scheinbaum and Lou Wasserman and some of the directors. I mean, that's the chairman and president of Universal Studios. And they had done Poseidon Adventure. They'd done the Towering Inferno. They had done... Uh, earthquake <clears throat> and they said well we're going to do it whether you do it or help us or not i said well let me do this send me the script and let me read the script and so i read the script and they've got transient drunken bums running the rides old uh, worn out people and i said you know this that's not our industry we have young great students and kids so i said if you let me edit the 
the script with your team and give you the information that really is here. I said, I think maybe we could work with you. So they sent it to me. I did it. We went out. I went out and met with them in California and I negotiated a, a deal with them and um, they paid us a quarter of a million dollars to, I don't even know if anybody knows that, to <laughs> uh, rent King's Dominion for six, eight weeks, however long they were there. And uh, that was a lot of money in the, those days. And <clears throat> they also allowed the script edits to go in the right way. So if you look at the movie, they didn't uh, <laughs> they didn't take out the, extort the extortionist uh, Tim Bottoms. But uh, so they came in and they said, uh, I met everybody. Uh, George Siegel became a great friend and Richard Woodmark and uh, Claybert, all of them, uh, Helen Hunt, they were all, <coughs> they were all there and uh, they kept saying, we need somebody to play the general manager and we'd like you to play the general manager of the park. I said, I don't have time. Thanks very much, but I don't have time. So they were going to hire a uh, short little fatter than I was worn out weatherman in Richmond. And I said, they told me that I said, no, you're, you're not going to have him running King's Dominion. And they said, well, we want you. I said, well, what are the lines? And they said, well, one of them is, would somebody please tell me what's going on around here? I said, hell, I say that 25 to 30 times a day. <laughs> and this is true. That is exactly what I told the director. And so they, they, they brought me in. I actually had six speaking lines. I have received royalty checks on that movie up until two years ago from anything from $2 to $2,500. I'd never know. I'd get the envelope and it'd be a, kind of a surprise. I didn't know I was being paid for it. And I, I didn't know it back then, incidentally. Uh, but... <laughs> Oh, to be immortalized on celluloid, that's fabulous. And <laughs> you can't take that away. So became good friends with uh, with those people. I have to tell you one quick story. George Siegel would uh, come in my office at night, and he'd have a drink with me after we were closing. And he, he played the banjo. And he'd just written a, uh, recorded a, a album called The Yama Yama Man. And um, so we, we, we really became friends. And so I'm out. The movies, the, the the team leaves, they were there those six, eight weeks, whatever it was. I don't see anybody. I hear back and forth from the producers and the executive director. And uh, they, uh, I'm out in California. I'm going to Hanna-Barbera because I was the liaison between uh, the parks and the studios out there. And I'm pulling the Beverly Hills Hotel, and I go downstairs in the apothecary to get me some chapstick and Alka-Seltzer. And here's George Siegel standing at the counter i see him he doesn't see me so and i haven't talked to him maybe only twice in the year now and i bump into him and he goes excuse me so i bump into him again i give him a good elbow and he goes excuse me and he turns and he looks and he goes denny what the hell are you doing here <laughs> and i said hey if i'm going to make my debut in a major motion picture with you I want to make sure I'm not on the cutting room floor. <laughs> and I came out to check it out, which was all bull. And we went upstairs and had a drink, and uh, the rest is history. Came out. That was the uh, second most expensive movie ever uh, made at that time. It was first movie in Sense Around.
I've watched it many times. And one of the things that caught my eye the first time I watched that movie when it came out in 1977 was the singing mushrooms. So talk about them a little bit. How did those come about? And did you expect them when you were at King's Dominion? Did you ever think they'd be so iconic? Well, I'll tell you what happened. Obviously, at that time, you know, early stages of our industry. Now we're back in the middle 70s, okay? Animation. We couldn't afford the Disney animation, but animation was big and people wanted it. So I set up a company within the King's Dominion Company, uh, and we called it Denny's Dilemma. And I brought in two very talented people who, who worked for King's Dominion. This was all under the King's Dominion banner. And uh, we started making uh, animation. And we had the mushrooms, hello to Yogi, hello to Scooby, hello to do, do, do. And then we had a, a big bear who was down at our train ride who sat up on the uh, water tank and he talked to the people in the queue line. And then we had a we had a few more yogis and things in the cave and some places. So I was really trying to create our own in-house uh, animation company. And uh, that was a tough period in our company and we had to watch expenses. So it, it, it kind of fell by the wayside. But, uh, you know, after all these years, Pat Jones, the general manager of King's Dominion four or five years ago, they brought back the mushrooms and have them singing the song again. So, yeah, it's still pretty cute. And uh, that's what it was all about, trying new things and getting things, getting things that people couldn't see uh, other places in the parks that entertained them. It was certainly identifiable to King's Dominion. I, I mean, I can't think about King's Dominion without the singing mushrooms. Mushrooms, yeah. <laughs> right. So, Dennis, after leaving um, King's Dominion, uh, you started your own company, International Theme Park Services Incorporated, better known as ITPS. Tell us about your company and what you do. Well, actually, they shuffled the deck in 1980 and they they moved people around and they started shuff, uh, <clears throat> they started moving the GMs and I was brought back to corporate and I was part of the uh, my title, I think, was vice president of operations of the parks. I wasn't being used properly in, in that role. And the new guy was um, Nelson Schwab at that time. And he really had no park experience. He had come out of, he was building condos and developments in down in the Southeast. And <clears throat> I, uh, I did that role for about a year. And at that time, that's about when Disney and Tokyo started uh, developing and building. It was such a success over in uh, with the Oriental Land Company. Well, people started coming to uh, Taft and wanting help. They were con consulting and, and investing and advising and anything they could. Well, at that point in time, the broadcasting was still the big part of the company. It wasn't the parks at that time. Um, and so I would take these projects into Nelson and Dudley and all of them and say, Hey, we got an opportunity here. They'll pay us a quarter of a million bucks, 300,000. Well, to, uh, to, that was, that was kind of crumbs on the table. And I don't mean that negatively. It was just small potatoes at that point in time to the company. But if you took those and brushed them on the floor to the mouse on the floor, that became a banquet. Hmm. Well, I was the mouse on the floor 
I was kind of tired of not being utilized properly. And I went in and said, hey, I'm going to either play me or trade me. And uh, and I left and under good, good auspices with with Taft Dudley. I did the uh, I helped put together the Australia's Wonderland. And Dudley said, would you Dudley Taft said, would you go down and finish that deal? And I said, absolutely. You know, I went down to Australia and finished and got that kind of ready in position. Keith James came down later and some other people. Uh, but uh, I I started ITPS. There was a company that had come to Taft who was one of those that wanted assistance and they weren't really given the assistance. And they said, really, what we like is you. Will you come to work for us? And I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be doing something. So that was my stepping stone. It was a project called Wonder World, which actually never happened. But they worked on it very hard, had great ideas, very talented team over there. And I was going back and forth all the time to England. And that was my first project. And then all this other work starts coming in because people are looking for assistance. So after a couple of years, they're still working on their project. I said, look, guys, I can't come to work for you full time. I've got too much on my plate now, uh, but I'll continue to help you. And I worked with them for another three or four years. Their funds were starting to dwindle. And I said, don't worry about paying me or paying my company. You were there when I needed uh, a stepping stone. I'm going to be here with you until their project went away. And we hit the ground running. And today we're, we're over 500 projects in 55 countries and have built and planned and operated and worked on some of the most biggest and most successful projects in the world, really. Yeah, it's a great. If you have not subscribed to the newsletter, the ITPS newsletter, highly recommended. It's uh, like one-stop shopping every day when you open up your email. Uh, Dennis, let's jump forward now to, to 2023, the season we just had. Uh, what were some of the things that maybe, you know, surprised you? Maybe some things that, uh, you know, you weren't expecting from 2023? Well, the world changed, as you know, Don, Ryan. I mean, in 2020... Uh, our legs were cut off with COVID, and there was uh, very little uh, good that came out of that one thing, which I'll talk about in a minute. But uh, uh, we we went from an industry that really was had been fine-tuned and was working very well. It's a pretty good mechanism now. This is all the parks, Disney, Universal, SeaWorld, Six Flags. Everybody is doing pretty well. Um, to a degree, and and then it was it, we were shut down. So we went from what I call we all use zero base budgeting in our in our businesses, but I said we went to zero base planning because we had to throw out all the old playbooks. You know, it's like having a football team and your playbooks. Throw them out. Let's start again. And um, the what surprised me the most, <clears throat> I think, is how we adjusted, how rapidly we adjusted, and 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 how we succeeded with those adjustments. I mean, Cedar Fair, Six Flags, all, all of the companies, Disney, everybody, purging people, purging different marketing approaches, different uh, capital approaches, stopping projects, continuing planning while we don't have any money. I mean, nobody knew where this industry was going at that point in time. Uh, disinfecting, sanitizing, sterilizing everything and and moving people, losing our capacities and things like that. But we we came through that. 
when we came back in 21, I could see we have here at ITPS, we've always been lucky. We, we were able to read the tea leaves and we saw the smoke and the fire coming and we knew <clears throat> that 2021 was going to be a hell of a bounce back season. And I was telling the investment community who I speak with a lot in the media that it looks like this is this pinup demand is going to be the roaring 20s of today. And it was, I mean, they came back in droves. Unfortunately, what happened was we couldn't handle them. We could not handle the people because we had to cut back our operations, people and all of these different plans that we had to put in. But the one thing, Don, that came out <clears throat> of 2020 and carried through into 23 and will into 24 is the per capita spins. Uh, it forced the parks, everybody, from the destinations to the regionals to look at and accelerate their touchless, cashless payment systems. So per capitas <clears throat> in 2021 rose between 11 and 36%. And that carried forward into 22 until we started seeing a little bit of the, the, the economic downturn. Attendance was falling faster than per caps and per caps have still hung in there. So uh, what, what was happening? People now were kind of buying in the theme parks, I said, the way uh, we shop online. We go into eBay or Amazon and say, and hey, while I'm in here, I'm going to buy this, this, and this. Well, they'd say, give me a churro and a burro and a candy apple and a Coke and a hot dog. So those sales went up dramatically. Had it not been for that, because the attendance was off, uh, you would have seen different results in all the companies and you would have seen some some disaster really out there. But those per cap being forced to do that the way we did and and implementing that really helped. So um, 23, uh, no, other than that, really no great surprises. I mean, uh, oil prices at the at the gas pumps were high this last season. Typically that pulls our attendance back as it did in 2007. It was like when the gas hit $4 a gallon in 2007, it was like people were hitting the head with a ball bat. They just stopped. Every time it went up a quarter, they stopped. We didn't see that fortunately in 2023. So it's kind of carried through, uh, but we are, uh, we're, we're watching the economy. This is gonna be a crazy year coming up because of the election. People are very cautious. Everybody I talk to in the industry is wondering what impact all this craziness in Washington, what we see every day on the news is going to have on us. And it has in the past. So we look at those kind of things. But um, we're we're a uh, very, I, I always said we're not a recession-proof industry, but we're very resilient. We're recession-resilient. What we do is we bounce back faster than hotels and airlines and movie theaters and things like that. And you guys probably know roughly 375 million people go to theme parks a year, more than the population. So um, they don't stop coming. They just they adjust their spendings and things like that. And Dennis, you, you made a couple of interesting points about, you know, we're living in this post-COVID world where 2020 was uh, very unique for a lot of reasons. And then 2021 was a bounce back. I feel like we we kind of had revenge travel and stuff like that for the next couple of years. Here we are about four years later. 
what do you think that 2024 is going to look like for the industry? Well, the thing we have, there are a couple of things we have to manage, Ryan, very carefully. And it's, <clears throat> it, it starts with the, with the uh, pricing, both at the front gate and internally. We hit the pricing wall about every nine to 10 years. And if you go back and look at this, and we've been in business 40 years, so we've watched it happen. Um, we finally, we've, we've priced it, priced it, priced it, priced it. Now people say, wait a minute, that's enough. And you start to see that, pull, that pullback in attendance. And I might say, that's right where we were in 2019 fourth quarter. And you guys might remember this from Kings Island because we were watching the Cedar and the Six and Disney. The season passes were not hitting their anticipated projections going into that fourth quarter when we sell them at Christmas, Halloween, Christmas. And I said, okay, guys, here it is. It's, it's right on schedule. Well, the satellite went out of control with, uh, with COVID, so we didn't get to see that. And then, of course, 21 came back. But I really think that those two issues, Ryan, your question, internal and admission pricing have to uh, really be watched very carefully. I believe we've just about outlived the pay one price concept. It's been with us since 1961. It's been great. For that, we were strip tickets, nickel ticket, or just an admission, general admission. <clears throat> and if you look at Disney, uh, you will see how well they've done with their dynamic pricing. And th their, their numbers have been really good the last few years. And it's been really due to that dynamic pricing and, and managing and implementing that properly. And our business, particularly in the regional parks, but destinations too, has always been a market up, market down business. So we we discount you could you know there was a time Don when you could find a, a discount on a, a McDonald's tray a Coca Cola a Pepsi a Burger King a Kroger bag I mean anywhere you looked the Publix the Luckies they were, you could find it on the bottom of your shoe and you took it to the window well that's changed with social media and the way we market our parks now but still a true transparent dynamic pricing program helps fill the voids uh, and it helps control the crowds and if you do it right like disney has when they're packed at christmas and new year's right and they close the gates they've increased the prices but that's cut back on the attendance so it gives the guests a better experience gives them more money and you got two two type of people come to your your perks on dynamic pricing time sensitive and price sensitive the time sensitive guy he's like me if i have to go to hong kong i got to get on a plane if i have to pay ten thousand dollars and be there in two days i have to do it although i charge it to the client okay <laughs> <laughs> if it's if it's the price sensitive guy he says hey honey see if you can find a ticket to king's island or king's dominion in april and she goes online with the true dynamic pricing. She says, yeah, there's a 40% discount there on a Tuesday. Let's go then. Yeah, let's tell the family. So you just have to manage that, implement it. And if you asked 100 people on the street about dynamic pricing, they wouldn't know the term, but they use it in airlines, car rentals, parking meters, 
uh, you know, goes on and on. Yeah. Dennis, one of the other challenges over the last couple of years, uh, do you see it continuing with staffing issues? Keep dumping that one. <laughs> I see them. Hey, sorry. Um, the, the one thing that disappoints me the most about our industry is the labor situation's been with us for years, and we really haven't managed that properly. COVID accelerated that, and it is here to stay because a lot of reasons. There's a lot of competition. Our, our seasons have been compressed. Schools get out later. They go back earlier. So those peak periods of June, July, August, which used to be like this, now they go up here and your your weeks are compressed. So you've got uh, parks like Six Flags Over Georgia that close daily during the first week in August because they can't get employees. Not only does it hurt you on the employee side, it hurts you on the family visitation side because they can't travel like they did. So it's changed and we need to do something about that. And uh, it, from the labor standpoint, uh, labor has always been our single biggest cost of, of our operating budgets. And it typically is about 50-50%. Today, that's over 63% in a lot of parks and rising. I mean, you had Cedar Point paying $25 an hour to high school and college students. Kings Island was in that high range. Six Flags was doing the same. And uh, yeah, we just have to find new ways, Don, to mine the ore, which are those people, because as I said earlier, you know, it takes five, six, seven thousand people to run a park like Kings Island or Kings Dominion or Six Flags over Texas. And uh, it, times are different. Uh, when we opened Kings Island, I love to tell the story. Um, personnel was lined up from front door personnel all the way through the parking lot out to Kings Island Drive. And we hired one person for every 10 we interviewed. That's changed. That's not the case anymore at any park. You don't have that kind of market. So we have to we have to address that. Yeah, I can remember my early years working at Kings Island, 2007, 8, 9, that we would have those big crowds come out when they'd have the job fairs and that would go from where the pest house is outside the front gate, but the line, but you're right. I mean, times have certainly changed and it's, it's, it's a struggle for everybody now. Every part. And Disney, we were doing something with them uh, this last year and a half. And uh, at any time we were working with, they could have hired 30% more people, they said. 30% more. Yeah. That's a, and that's not a few people. Dennis, I, I know that probably nobody's ever asked you about this before, but Cedar Fair and Six Flags announced a merger. And I do remember uh, the you had a video embedded in your newsletter and you talked about how it'll bring down costs. I think you specifically use the example of like even straws will be cheaper, which is absolutely true. Uh, but let's take a slightly different perspective. Uh Kind of go through very, very briefly the the pros of this and what you think might be some cons of it. Well, um, we're a mature industry, and everybody who is in it should understand that, and everybody who's coming into it should understand that. And mature industries go through roll-ups and mergers just like we have. Uh, I was saying to you guys uh, earlier that we we have here at ITPS, we've done about $700 million 
in M&A space, over 45 parks bought and sold. So I've seen this process for over 15 years. And it's, um, it's, it can be a good process. And I believe that, <clears throat> and I've been very candid on this topic, that Cedar Fair is the wind beneath the wings of Six Flags. Six Flags has been a, a ship at sail uh, for the last eight, nine years, maybe more, without a captain, just floating all over. And it has certainly progressively gotten worse. Uh, Mike Spanos, uh, who was uh, came in and was literally hired right on the doorstep of COVID and left right before it, it was out, uh, COVID was going away. Uh, he didn't get any traction, wasn't able to do anything with Six Flags, and the ship just went like this and all over. Then the, the new CEO, Celine Basul, came in and really has no knowledge of the industry. I mean, he's made pronouncements of, about uh, Six Flags when he came in that uh, just didn't make any sense, quite quite frankly and honestly, if people are, are being honest. And um, so I think I think cedar coming in <clears throat> and one th good thing about richard zimmerman is richard is a guy who gets it on both sides of the ledger he, he came out of paramount i've known richard for years he gets the number side wonderfully excellently and he had the opportunity to sit in the gm chairs and operate the park so he gets the operating side so what do you get there you get a good mesh of a ceo who understands the business and it's not just a, out of balance uh, one way or the other. So when you look at the operating efficiencies, <clears throat> the Six Flags company has been severely hindered the last eight, 16, 18 months. And they've lost a lot of key personnel. They lost their presidents. They lost their corporate people. Uh, and they lost people down in the parks uh, at the maintenance and safety and retail and those areas, which uh, uh, we just can't afford to lose in our industry. They're hard to find, hard to train. <clears throat> but the good part of it, Ryan, to answer your question is, you do get the efficiencies, and I've seen this. I've, I've been part of this doing the due diligence on some companies where you've got the soft side, which are the straws and the cups and the hamburger and the light bulbs and the, all, all that kind of stuff that, that makes parts operate from a, from a daily basis. You get that leverage because if you do it right, and you have a good central buying uh, or regional buying, you you will save money. You will save millions of dollars. Uh, on the other side of the ledger, <clears throat> the hard side I call it is the rides and attractions. So uh, there was when Six Flags uh, did their roll up back in the '90s, uh, and they overpaid too much. Uh, Kieran Burke and Gary Story, those guys, they overpaid for their parks. Uh, they were paying eleven times multiples and it was driving six flags down in the, into the ground they had to do all these cutbacks they couldn't get the efficiencies of that uh, that if, if it was well managed you could see a six flags and a cedar getting today and that really impacted six flags when they couldn't get those efficiencies they had to cut back hours and days and operations within the park so if i can sit down now <clears throat> with premier rides or Vacoma or Intamin or B&M or uh, whomever. Uh, and I say, look guys, we don't wanna put you out of business. We want you to make money because we need you. You're important to our industry. You're our life's blood. You're the attractions that we put the people on. 
I want to buy 10 of these over the next three years. Give me a good, a good uh, price and let's do it. Uh, and and you, you're going to save a lot of money that way. And it, it, only, it also, Ryan, it, it not only is on the purchase price, but it's on the maintenance and the ongoing because there are, there are other aspects of that that trickle down through the operating budgets that will work in their effect. So uh, is it going to be an easy task? No, uh, of this merger. There's a lot that uh, is going to have to be worked on and managed. Uh, but eventually, I, I think it's going to take a couple of years, but I think it'll it'll be a harmonious uh, uh, relationship. Now, Dennis, as part of this uh, merger plan, uh, Six Flags and Cedar Fair, uh, the DOJ, you know, has come in and they're going to have to do like a second request for information. Kind of walk our listeners through what that really means. Well, I've been involved with, as I said earlier, with deals where that's where that's happened. Uh, not nothing quite this large because this will be the largest merger in our industry's history. <clears throat> We're bringing together. Uh, a package that'll be end up being somewhere around 42 parts. Right now, the Department of Justice, <clears throat> DOJ, is uh, they're looking at at mergers and acquisitions a little more differently and a little more uh, uh, in depth than they have over the last 10 or so years. Uh, good example: Don is right here in Cincinnati. Kroger, the largest grocer, is buying Albertsons, and that's a huge huge and thousands and thousands of operations and one of them I think it was Albertson said they already have to close 430 park or uh, parts uh, grocery stores to not compete and but if you look at six and cedar you got 42 parks that have been there in existence and they really have never competed that heavily with one another uh, as we built the industry and we built the market uh, if you look at the United States, there's a major theme park within two and a half hour drive of ever every SMSA, every major SMSA. There's a little bit of overlap of those circles because we do concentric uh, population circles of 50, 100, 150, 200, and, and beyond the travel market. But you got a little bit out in California with Magic Mountain and Knott's Berry Farm. Got a little over on the East Coast, maybe with Carowinds and uh, Six Flags over Georgia. Uh, maybe a little bit down in the Southwest with Six Flags down there. But um, really, and Slitterbahn. But other than that, no, I don't I don't think uh, that's going to be a, an obstacle. Something they'll look at, they have to. Uh, that's something that would uh, tear up the deal. I don't think so. So, Dennis, one of the things that a lot of people... Um seem to be concerned with on, on both sides of this deal. And, and I'm talking about from a guest standpoint is they're worried that their, their local Cedar Fair Park is going to start looking like Six Flags Parks or Six Flags Parks are going to look like Cedar Fair Parks and they're not going to retain their identities. What are your what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that each park will have its own identity? Is that important from a business standpoint? Or do you think that ultimately the streamline will cause the parks to have a lot more uh, repetition as far as what the park looks and feels like? Well, I look at that more as branding, Ryan. <clears throat> and uh, I'll give you an example. And Don, you you were back there at this time when Paramount bought Kings. 
they came in and they put that Paramount sign on the King sign out front. And there was hell to pay <laughs> people in the marketplace. They were they were upset. I mean, I think they were picketing out there. Then. And nobody was happy. This is our park. This is not a thing. It's King's Island, blah, blah, blah. So I think a lot was learned back then. I think uh, Zimmerman gets that, I'm sure. Now, if you take the two companies and you're honest, Six Flags has a better national branding than Cedar Fair because Cedar Fair was never really under one umbrella like Six Flags. I'll tell you what I told the media when they called me when Disney bought Marvel and they're living it right now with Spider-Man, if you're following the news. They said, what do you think they're going to do with Spider-Man? I said, what do you think they're going to do? Put him in a closet and put him on a shelf and just keep it in the library? I said, they're going to use him. And there's going to be a time that this thing ages out and you're going to see Spider-Man go into Disney. Well, that happened. I said, you may not see it in Florida or California right away. Well, it was Hong Kong and Japan and the other places. And the uh, same thing is going to happen with Six Flags. You're not going to see, uh, well, the stock, I think, is going to be under the under the Six uh, acronym. Um, I don't think you're going to see the Six go up on parks that, all the parks. I don't know where it will, where it won't, but I think it'll be very judicious in their planning how they do that. But eventually, um, I think that's that that could be a very good thing for the company that once they get Six Flags healthy again, get that brand up and bring it to the people and make them happy, I think that could be a very good thing. So it'll happen at some point in time, but not right away. Yeah, Dennis, kind of along the lines of what you're saying, between the two, you know, with Cedar Fair, you've got the Peanuts, Six Flags, you know, you've got the DC characters, you got the Looney Tunes. Can they all live in the same world? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look at Disney, what they've done. The biggest mistake Disney ever made in the last 20 years, in my opinion, is they opted out of the Harry Potter auction <laughs> and they let Universal buy it. And uh, when Universal bought Harry Potter and bought it in with their other Nickelodeon and all their other things that they were doing, the uh, uh, what's the family, the crazy family, they're all blue and yellow and everything. You know what I mean? Marge and Homer. Oh, Simpsons. 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 Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> they blended that in. Well, people are looking for this, this new IP. And, um, yeah, they can absolutely live together. And, uh, you know, smart management team will figure out how to use that demographically properly and put it in the product line. And I think it gives them, a, you know, an atomic bomb to work with uh, that. Uh, we went through a feeding frenzy in the industry here as it related to IPs about 10 years ago. And they were buying, companies were buying up everything. Well, everything was pretty well bought up back then. So to get some of these more popular things, that we know work and people love tested time. Uh, yeah, I think it's going to work and, and and be very, very good. I think it's a great deal. Awesome. Cool. So, Dennis, I'd really appreciate you being on the show. Uh, obviously, like, you know, it, there's a lot of people in the industry, but there's also a lot of enthusiasts that listen to the show. So why don't you uh, give us your website? And, you know, we already plugged your newsletter. Tell us where you can, you know, where you can get onto that. Well, we're happy. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me on. It's my pleasure. Uh, uh, Don, you and I have been friends for years, and uh, 
always supported you and you've supported me and Ryan. I know you and we just met here recently, but uh, thanks for thanks for including me. Uh, our our newsletter, we've been doing it now 26 years. It's free, goes out every day. It covers theme parks, amusement parks, water parks, family entertainment centers, museums, uh, uh, zoos, aquariums, LBEs, location-based entertainment, goes all the way down. So you can find something you like in there and you click on it, you read the story. And I have to tell you, every year at IAPA, from Iger to whoever I see down there or run into, they say, hey, Spiegel, the first thing we do in the morning is we get our cup of coffee and go to the computer and turn on and see what's happening in the industry. We we read your uh, we read your newsletter. So that's a, that's a good testament. So uh, they can contact Sean Haas at innerthemepark.com, S-H-A-W-N-H-A-A-S at inter, inter, I-N-T-E-R, themepark.com. And you can become a subscriber. And uh, again, there's no cost to that. And we're happy to do it. Um, and our uh, our general website, Ryan, is uh, www.innerthemepark.com. And you can go online and uh, you can see who we are and what we do. Uh, we've really covered the globe. Um, things aren't as busy today in the industry for all of us as it was back in the 80s and 90s, but we're still busy. Uh, but again, we're a mature industry here and we're becoming a mature industry in, in the uh, um, around the globe now. And I would say to you guys, the one thing I think you really ought to take a look at for some of your future podcasts uh, is uh, the technological advancements that are coming on. I don't know if you know Lanny Smoot, but Lanny just came out <clears throat> with this new holo tile where you literally stand on the floor and the, you can move in any direction, as many people as you want, and you go nowhere. Huh. They'll be using this in movies. They'll be using this on rides. They'll be using this on Broadway. They'll be using this. I mean, I it, it this is so incredible. I watched it four times this week and uh, things like that are coming along that we we couldn't even conceive of just not even five years ago a year or two ago so you, you ought to be looking at all those great technological advancements that are coming which are what we want to see happen and buy because that's what brings the people in that's what they come for so. absolutely yeah well yeah well dennis uh, you know really appreciate your time uh, you know, talking with us here on the Attraction Group podcast. And, uh, you know, like I said, you and I go way back. And I've, I've always uh, enjoyed, you know, hearing you talk about the industry, where it's been, where it's going. And uh, most of the time, you've been spot on. Well, just keep in mind what I tell everybody. We're not here for a long time. We're here for a good time. Yep. That's why you got to work in the industry. Well, thanks again, Dennis. Uh, thank you to all the listeners for listening to the Attractions Group podcast. Uh, make sure that you follow us in all your favorite podcast apps. Watch the YouTube video. Hit that subscribe button. Hit like. And uh, I'll put a link in the description to your website so they can kind of check out ITPS and what you do. Because especially if people listening to this want to get involved in the industry, um, you guys are really a fantastic resource for that. So thank you again for being on the show, Dennis. Thanks, guys. Good to be with you. Thank you.